0: Well, good evening. It's a little bit after. I had just, uh, uh, I guess I went home, and (laughs) for those interested in the minutiae of my day, I went home, had something to eat, and went to the gym. And my wife is working late tonight, so I'm going to go and have a thoroughly enjoyable time shopping for a disastrous Christmas present that no doubt will be returned, but which will be fun to give anyway. And for those who are tracking the most important aspects of these podcasts, yesterday I lost a travel mug. I drove off with the travel mug, steaming with hot tea on the top of my car, and, you know, reality working in its mysterious fashion. It uh, reappeared, although I parked in a completely different spot today, it reappeared right by my door as if a sign from uh, nothing. There is no God and no fate. So to finish off this um, discussion on healthcare, I wanted to talk briefly about what, um, you know, what happens when you put the irrational sort of moral arguments into place that um, I talked about just sort of in the previous podcast. And, you know, what are the sort of effects and, you know, how could things be run better and, you know, all this kind of juicy stuff. Well, the way that I... I mean, one of the main reasons, one of the main problems that I have with the um, the current healthcare system is that it is... Um, uh, it, it makes its entire money, it makes its entire profit off of cure uh, rather than prevention, right? This is what happens when people have a right to health care. Then they're no longer responsible for their health decisions. You know, I mean, they will tend to postpone difficult health choices like losing weight and exercising, changing your diet and all that kind of stuff because there's no financial incentive for them to take care of themselves. I mean, there is, of course, some financial incentive, and then generally you do better when you're healthy than when you're sick. But you can make, you know, bad health decisions for years and years and years before it catches up with you, right? I mean, you can eat uh, lots of sugar and don't exercise. And you know, like when you're 55 or 54 or 50, you will get your diabetes, right? So you can make lots of bad decisions, you know, and there's obese people who live into their 60s and so on. So in the sort of day-to-day decisions, what you want or what would be a rational course of events in a sort of free market situation is that your uh, the financial costs of your health care uh, bills in the future, assuming you had insurance, that your future health care costs would be Subjected or, or would be relative to the healthy choices you were making in the present. And, of course, one of the most healthy choices you can make economically is to say, you know, when I'm on my deathbed, don't uh, don't make me linger. You know, like if there's no hope, then, you know, for heaven's sakes, just let me exit uh, gracefully rather than sort of claw to life in this descending spiral hell of pain and, you know, burn up half my health care costs in the last couple of months of my life, which is, of course, what people tend to do because you know euthanasia is illegal and you know it's not your life it's the government's, so you know they can't you can't uh, you know can't get rid of it which is just this christian hangover right i mean it's just this hangover that suicide is you know immoral and all this sort of nonsense so you know you're going to have to make some choices about healthcare costs if in a sort of free market situation and, you know, there are lots of different healthcare, cho- healthcare choices that you can make. I mean, you can say that I'm going to, you know, be a slob and, you know, eat badly and never get off the couch and and, you know, sort of waste away within my own skin. And then I'm going to throw myself on the mercy of, you know, common humanity, right? So I'm going to sort of, you know, plead tears of, oh, I, I was ignorant, I was abused, and, and just, you know, cry havoc and let slip the dogs of charity, right? I mean, it's a perfectly valid strategy. It's a tad risky because, you know, it's a little hard to feel sorry for somebody who's, you know, 300 pounds uh, who is complaining of, you know, uh, poor uh, knees or bad circulation or whatever. But it's a it's a perfectly valid strategy you know who am I to say how somebody else should live their life right I mean, in terms of like I'll absolutely thunder from the pulpit that they shouldn't kill they shouldn't steal, they shouldn't rape, they shouldn't whatever right, but as far as you know how you're gonna deal with your own health, good Lord I, you know far better things to do than go and nag people about you know health uh it's a personal choice all I want is to not have to pay for people who you know smoke like chimneys and you know exercise like vats of butter um so, you know, that's a perfectly valid strategy, just, you know, eat, do do bad things to yourself and hope for charity. You know, another one, of course, is to uh, attempt to, you know, live as healthily as possible, and, you know, save all the money and, you know, all of that and save the money that you've saved, uh, you know, put out other things, you know, because you're going to get yourself covered and you're going to do a lot better because insurance companies are going to, you know, they'll sort of be like the wives we all need if we're guys, right, who sort of nag us to get, you know, the, the colonoscopy and, you know, with a prostate exam and all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, insurance companies they absolutely only, they only make money if we're healthy, you know. And, and again, I'm not talking about the current sluggish, torpid, state-controlled mess of public and private uh, uh, concerns in the American system. I'm certainly not talking about the um, uh, the, uh, the healthcare system in Canada, which is, you know, this, this sort of Soviet nightmare. But, you know, in any sort of rational system, of health, you want to make sure that the incentives are the highest for, you know, the prevention of of illness, right? I mean anybody who, you know, manages any sort of complex fixed acid facility knows this, that, you know, reactive capital, i.e. something broke because I didn't maintain it, is fifteen to forty times more expensive than proactive capital, like let me replace the filter before the boiler bursts into flames. So, you know, prevention is, you know, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So you want to make sure that a system, which is going to be rational, is going to want to obviously maximize uh, the profit, minimize the loss, which means maximize the health and minimize the sickness. It all makes perfect sense, right? And if you choose not to maximize the health and minimize the sickness, i.e. if you, you know... Do bad things to your body, uh, then you know it's, it's a perfectly valid choice. But you have to pay, pay for it, right? It's certainly nobody else's responsibility but yours, your health. Uh, you know, unless they choose to make it their own through some sort of altruistic OCD compulsion. So you know, it really doesn't make a lot of sense uh, to have a system which would have the opposite, where everybody makes money off curing things and nobody makes a penny off preventing things. But of course, that would be a free market system where money is made through health. And I think it's an old Chinese custom that you pay your doctor until you get sick, right? And so his incentive is to keep you healthy and and then you return you to health as, as, as quickly as possible. So that would be a sort of free market situation that would sort of make sense. Um, but, of course, the other thing that you want to do in a free market situation is not have any of this, you know, ridiculous state-enforced licensing, right? I mean, this is just a complete cartel, on, on healthcare that, you know, the, the, the doctor's union, I mean, let's not call the AMA and the CMA anything different, right? The doctor's monopolistic uh, cartel uh, has, you know, completely violently cornered the market, right? I mean, if I was able to say that me and my buddies are the only people allowed to program in in .NET, you know, we'd make a fortune. I mean, okay, maybe not in that particular example. Let's say maintain Java code or something. Uh, you know, we'd make a fortune. And, you know, people would say, my God, we can't let the free market handle programmers because they're so expensive, you know, that nobody would be able to afford it if it wasn't, you know, subsidized and controlled and carteled and if it wasn't a, uh, a, mon- a monopoly. So of course this is the you know what, what uh, the, the uh, doctors unions did is they said okay well we now own this brand name called doctors and you know we are going to make sure that nobody else can come in and practice healthcare and the way that we're going to do that is we're going to treat all of the patients like complete, drooling, idiot children and not let them refill their own prescriptions. I mean, of all the ridiculous things in the world, you know, uh, you know, if, if I have a sore throat and the only thing that cleared it up was tetracycline last time, then, you know, I'm going to go and take tetracycline again. And, you know, please don't give me this nonsense about that they need to control this, that, and the other because, you know, uh, what about if we all become immune? To, I mean, they just prescribe this stuff like crazy anyway, so... Uh, you know, I, as an adult, you know, with the internet and with you know a sort of fairly functional brain on my shoulders, uh, I am more than happy to to look up things on the internet and to take the advice of my pharmacist and dose myself. You know, I mean, it's completely ridiculous. I've never had a doctor, you know, give me more than ten or fifteen or twenty seconds of. Uh, um, Uh, of uh, you know thought or consideration at maximum I mean I get a heck of a lot more attention from my pharmacist and I can spend as much time as I want on the internet and you know I really don't uh, believe that a doctor is required for me to be able to dose myself with stuff that I've you know worked in the past and I can check with my pharmacist about you know any sort of whatever cross pollination bad effects that might happen So, you know, you want to make sure there's no monopoly. I mean, if you want to go to, you know, Joe Licensing Doctor, right? I mean, some sort of private sector market could could, uh, license it. So you absolutely would want to make sure that, you know, there's none of this nonsense because it's completely immoral. Monopolies are completely immoral because... You know, it's a moral law has to apply to all human beings. And a monopoly or a cartel, by definition, is composed of a pretty small minority of people who want to profit incrementally at the expense of everybody else. So, you know, you have vicious competition among the uh, health insurance companies. You have no licensing among doctors other than those which are privately supplied and will be a hell of a lot better, by the way, than the uh, the medical uh, union does now. I mean, my God, you read about this stuff in the paper where, you know, You know, Joe Doctorhead goes and, you know, abuses patients sexually for 12 years and he gets his license suspended for six months and a $5,000 fine. I mean, my God, it's like he's a priest or something. So, you know, let's not look to uh, have any kind of regulation in terms of quality. You know, I mean, if if the Doctors' Union was at all interested in something like quality, they would simply publish the success ratios of the doctors who uh, they represented. You know, I mean, I can go and get all of the specs that I want about an MP3 player or a car, you know, uh, but God help me if I want to find out if I have prostate cancer, who's the best prostate cancer guy in the city? I can't get the success rates of these people. Why not? Isn't that a fairly important thing to get when I'm shoveling over money to get cured from a life-threatening illness? Wouldn't it be sort of important for me to be able to find out just who the hell is best at treating me and choose whether or not I want to pay the premium rates associated with that? I mean, as a minor aside, I mean, this is this is the state of people's thinking uh, in in Canada for sure. I mean, I guess in the in the world, perhaps maybe as well. But you know, <laughs> you know, this whole question about uh, two-tier health care in Canada, which I talked about two podcasts ago. So you know, there's a letter in the newspaper, and occasionally, for sort of masochistic reasons, I'll go and have a look at these letters. And you know, this one person was saying, "Oh, we don't want to go back to the bad old days when you had to sell your house for the sake of a life-threatening." Um, operation you know to which my sort of thought was immediately of course hell yeah we sure do because you know so i have to sell my house for a life-saving operation i don't really (laughs) can't really figure out what the hell good my house does me if i'm dead (laughs) so i can't really figure out why i would want to hang on to my house and be dead (laughs) You know, I can't exactly enjoy it from the grave, you know, without scaring all the remaining people who live in it. So I just think that stuff's kind of funny, you know. Uh, Of course, in Canada, you just, you really can't get these life-saving operations unless you've got a lot of political pull. So, you know, at least if you had, you know, done something decent with your life in terms of making money and, you know, you'd worked hard, gone to school, you'd get some payoff or at least you could mortgage your house to save your life rather than, you know, claw at the outside of this You know, heavily fortified uh, uh, healthcare establishment, this socialistic, you know, uh, Venus flytrap, and never get in and die anyway. (laughs) It's like at least with that, when you can sell your house, you've got a chance. You know, now if you're not a politician or you know have a best friend who's a doctor, uh, you know, you're just, you're just, you know, uh, you're food for worms, my friend. So uh, you know that that kind of thinking, I always thought, I always think is kind of funny. So uh, yeah, so you mean you want to lower the costs, of course, and the costs will lower automatically to an optimal level in the free market. Everybody's aware of that, and you want to make sure that you you know would never even dream of having a um, a situation uh, wherein you would uh, have profit being made from illness. You would always, always, always want to have profit being made from uh, prevention, right? So of course you would have insurance companies that would absolutely, you know, force you to take blood tests and so on. I mean, I know this because I've just gone up for executive insurance within my company. And, man, they went over me with a fine-tooth comb. I mean, they really did. I'm surprised there wasn't things stuck up every orifice. So, you know, and that was all good. You know, I got my bill work back. And, you know, I guess 20 years of working out has paid off, healthy, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, they absolutely want to make sure that they're going to set their insurance rates for me or, you know, the uh, health care rates for me as as cheaply as possible to make sure that, you know, they're not going to be paying out some sort of uh, uh, surprise amount of money because, you know, they didn't check whether I was taking care of myself or not. So, you know, uh, the free market aligns around reality. You know, it's it's what it's very good at doing is figuring out reality because those who don't figure out reality uh, don't tend to uh, last very long uh, in the free market. So, you know, let's say for sure that uh, a company is going and and sorry, the the reality is that, you know, prevention is is much, much, much cheaper than cure. And of course, there's no cure for life as it stands. You're going to die sooner or later and you want to make sure that you don't waste all your money uh, doing, uh, you know, very expensive healthcare at the end of your life when you're, you know, your days are numbered, so to speak, uh, as it is. So, you know, that that is sort of the reality of the situation. So the free market is going to work to optimize that that situation. So it is going to give you those kind of financial cues, or I guess you could say clues, but cues is probably better. Uh, It's going to give you those financial cues, you know, right up front. Right up front. You are going to know, based on your current behaviors, what it's going to cost you, down the road, in terms of healthcare, because you know you're going to have you know propeller-headed actuarials beavering over this kind of data for decades, and you know, um, and so you know your future healthcare costs are going to be an in in exact and you know down to the decimal point reflection of your current habits and health indicators. So you are going to have a constantly moving and constantly calibrated gauge of you know the economic effects of your healthcare uh, choices or your health, your sort of personal healthcare choices. You're going to have that continually updated down the road. And I remember, I guess this is sort of many, many years ago. Uh, gosh, how many? 10? 11? You know, I was sort of toodling around on the internet, and I came across a website. This is back, back when you, you know, cool, surfing the web was cool because of like, you know, 27 sites or something like that. You know, and I came across the website of this guy who had decided to lose weight because... His uh, insurance was going sky high, right? So he was a smoker. He was overweight. He didn't exercise, of course, <clears throat> and so his healthcare bills were horrendous, right? I mean, his insurance was going. So he's like, "Oh my god, I can't afford this." You know, gym membership is hundred bucks a month, and I have to pay four hundred bucks a month more for this healthcare, right? So he, you know, made the decision and you know quit smoking and lost weight and exercised, and you know, of course, gradually clawed back his um, uh, his healthcare expenses or so his his insurance healthcare expenses. Uh, you know, and that of course is exactly the kind of feedback that you want to give to people. You you want to absolutely, positively make sure that they are getting as many cues as humanly possible for their um, uh, for their uh, you know their healthcare choices and proactively and positively and you know you want to guide them right you don't want them to just sort of find out down the road that what they're doing is very expensive because you know people you know you you got a donut sitting in front of you 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 know this kind of stuff maybe I'm going to get sick in 20 years I mean this is not how people think it's not really how I think well maybe not I mean a little sort of I guess I've always been sort of slightly obsessed with sort of working out and this and that so uh, so uh, I would say that uh, you want to make sure that you give people as much feedback as possible right up front about the long-term consequences of their healthcare choices. Right, so so at least they, you know, if they choose to to sort of make bad healthcare choices, you know, at least they're not nailing other people with costs, and at least they're doing it with sort of a full understanding of the at least the financial consequences of what they're doing. So, you know, that would sort of be a rational way that, you know, to, to organize healthcare because it you know, it sort of reflects the reality of what it is that people are, you know, actually faced with in the world, which is, you know, cure is much more expensive than prevention. So, you know, in a free market system, since the free market always, you know, pretty much adheres to reality in the long run, that's exactly what you would expect. Uh, whereas, of course, in, you know, and I'll just talk about the Canadian healthcare system, nobody makes a penny from prevention. I mean, not at all, not even a dime. Um, maybe dentists a little bit but uh, oh, sorry, dental plans but you know nobody makes a penny from prevention and so uh, you know this is not something that you would uh, ever set up as a rational system right I mean to, to doctors will always make money when you're sick and they won't make a penny if you avoid getting sick so it's the exact opposite of reality right because you know nobody like the economy as a whole does not profit when people get sick um but doctors in, in socialist or sort of a semi-socialist healthcare system, doctors do profit when people get sick. So you know this is the exact opposite of reality, and and this is of course where violence leads you to, right? Violence in terms of you know a coercive healthcare system that you pay for whether you want to or not, and you know your premiums have nothing to do with your healthcare choices, and you know doctors are paid not for keeping you healthy but for treating you when you're sick. You know then of course what doctors want pretty much is they want a repetitive. Uh, situation where you know you are constantly getting sick, uh, and you know never quite cured, and yet never really sick. You know that's sort of their ideal uh, world that they want to uh, to live in or to deal with, and you know of course that's what you end up seeing in the uh, in the healthcare system as a whole. In, in Canada for sure that, you know, I mean, these people treat doctors, you know, over and over to they go over and over and over again, and of course, it's, you know, it's a complete haven for, uh, for hypochondriacs, right, because um, that is, uh, you know, you, you don't have to pay to the doctor to go to the doctor, boy, it really doesn't get any better than that in terms of, um, uh, you know, a happy land for, for hypochondriacs. So, I mean, that would sort of make sense, you know, as far as I'm concerned, from a sort of preventable illness standpoint, right? But, you know, of course, everybody knows that there's some things that happen to your, you know, healthcare, in your healthcare world that, you know, are not your fault, right? I mean, you might just develop... Multiple sclerosis, or you know, uh, you know, the old get hit by a bus thing. Something may happen in your healthcare world that is simply not your fault, and you know, there is a certain perspective that says, "Well, look, uh, since it's not, you know, it's not a a a parent's fault." That their child gets MS or, or something like that, and therefore, since it's sort of randomly the luck of the draw, it's not mu- it's not the sort of moral or just uh, to say that they have to pay for it. Uh, you know, I mean, doesn't doesn't really sort of seem fair that you know sort of random biological accidents of this kind should be um, a you know an absolute financial stranglehold over over the parents, right? Well, I mean, I guess I have sort of two responses to that. One is kind of cold and mean, and the other one is sort of statistical and perhaps a little more gentle. Um, As far as, you know, fairness goes, I just think uh, it's, um, well, it's, it's stupid to use a sort of technical term. You know, fairness is one of these things that's sort of this religious hangover that just doesn't have any logical basis to it. I mean, you know, reality is messy and biological life in particular is messy. Things can happen. Bad things can happen. You know, we can all drop dead tomorrow. We all could have an aneurysm forming, you know, a blood clot forming as as you listen to this or, or as I speak, I could be dead now. This could be a voice from the grave because I got deep vein thrombosis, you know, driving to pick up my wife's gift. So, you know, the idea that there's some sort of abstract fairness that biological... Tragedies are a deviation from is, you know, very much an idea that the universe is ordered and, you know, created by a rational deity and, you know, fairness is sort of the idea, you know, that there's a mysterious kind of fairness that, you know, that uh, uh, sort of exists. And and, and that, you know, is very annoying to me, just logically, right? Because, you know, the idea of fairness is clearly derived from the idea of an omniscient deity. And, you know, yet uh, it would seem to me that if there was an omniscient deity which, you know, was so interested in fairness, then, you know, to interfere would not seem to me to make any sense, right? So, if you say, well, it's bad if, you know, it's it's not fair for a someone's kid to get multiple sclerosis, then you've got this sort of fairness thing, and this is a deviation from it, and that fairness thing can only really come from it, the idea of a god because... I mean, there's no such thing as reality. In reality, is fairness. I mean, there's justice, which is a recognition of reality, but there's no such thing as fairness. Like, we're all born the same height or with the same level of intelligence or with the same quality of singing voices or anything. Um, so the idea that there's some sort of fairness and that it's unfair for a kid to get multiple sclerosis comes from a, a belief in God. Yet, you know, if God gave the kid multiple sclerosis, surely it's a bad idea to interfere with it. I mean, neither neither one... <laughs> gives any sort of sense that other people should fund, you know, the cure or the the maintenance or the the management of your kid's multiple sclerosis. If there is a God, uh, then maybe there's such a thing as fairness, but, you know, God gave this kid multiple sclerosis, so it's a test, and to interfere would be to, to thwart the will of God and so on, right? And if there is no God, then there's no such thing as fairness, and it's sort of ridiculous to talk about this as a deviation from some sort of standard, right? I mean, there's no such thing as as an even height for human beings that everybody is a pure is a deviation from, and it's all unfair. You know, people are just as tall as they're tall. You know, is it unfair for you know a guy to be short? No, not really. Uh, Because there's no such thing as fairness in that sense. You know, is it fair that I sort of started losing my hair at 17 years of age? Well, no, of course not. I mean, it's not fair or unfair. It's just my genetics. It's just the way things are. So that's sort of my sort of cold, uh, sort of, I guess you could call it cold, but just, you know, there's just no such thing as fairness in that sense, right? The only thing that is that, that is even close to fairness is something called justice, which is just a recognition of reality. You know, so it is just to recognize that there is no such, such thing as fairness. I mean, that is a, a perfectly logical uh, conclusion to come to because, you know, there's no evidence that there's any sort of force in the world that, that evens things out, right? I mean, some people just are born to terrible lives. And, you know, it's it's sort of part of this, or perhaps it's a a cause of this particular philosophy. I sure as hell did not get born into a beneficial family situation. (laughs) You know, as I've sort of mentioned before, my, uh, my family was just horrible and violent and, you know, destructive and crazy. I mean, my mom was institutionalized. My brother is a sadist. I mean, my father is just, ugh, wretched. A wretched human. Wretched specimen of a human being and uh, you know, and we had no money, and I was constantly having to work. I started working when I was eleven, and you know, uh, when uh, when my mother was institutionalized, my brother was in England, and she stayed in bed for two weeks beforehand. I had to go to school, and eviction notices. I mean, so uh, you know, I guess I, I don't think that. I guess I railed against it from time to time, but I never really got the sense that it was fundamentally unfair, because, I mean, I, maybe you know, this, this also sounds precocious, you know, because this was, I was sort of 14, 13 or 14 when this was happening. But it was sort of, I guess, outside of my comprehension that things could be different and I would be me. Like I could say, it's not fair that I have this family. I should have another family which is, you know, calm and peaceful and happy and blah, blah, blah. But if I had that family, I wouldn't be me. And so, and I kind of liked being me and I kind of always have. So even though there was, you know, terrible, you know, stress and strain and, and, you know, emotional horrors abounded, I still could never really figure out that it was unfair because the only way that you could fix that fairness would be to have me born to a different family and thus I wouldn't have these thoughts of it being unfair because I would be in that family and I wouldn't be me. So to experience what I experienced in the family that I was born into, I had to be me. And so I would only come up with the idea of unfairness if I was already in that unfair situation. And if I wasn't, I probably wouldn't. So, I mean, that's a sort of, hopefully, hopefully not too convoluted, but that's why I never really understood it as an unfair situation, because I would have to, you know, want to be somebody else who would never think of it being unfair. So, you know, the only reason I was thinking about fairness was because I was in this difficult situation, so wishing that it was somehow different would be to take away the whole mental causality that made me think of it in the first place, so... Anyway, I hope that makes some kind of sense. It does to me, uh, and I hope uh, I hope I'm not alone in that. So um, you know, I guess good luck. You can replay it if you like. I, I think maybe on the fourth listen it'll make sense. Um, so that's sort of one, and the, and the second aspect to this thing called unfairness. I mean, this is true of life in general, not just the metaphysical. Oh, sorry, not just the um, the uh, the healthcare issue, but I think it's very hard to say that. Any risk which can be predicted, which is not managed, which occurs, is unfair. I mean, that is just a false proposition. If you can predict a a risk and you fail to manage it and it then occurs, then you have chosen uh, to accept that risk. I mean, all life is calculated weighing risks, right? I mean, every time I drive to work, I can get creamed by an 18-wheeler. But I like going to work because it gives me an income and, you know, I can use the company computer in my car to record my podcasts and stuff like that. So, um, so I guess I would say that, uh, you know, we all accept a wide variety of risks every day. We manage those risks as best we can. And, you know, I obviously try and drive as safely as possible and I have car insurance and I have life insurance and I have disability insurance and so on. And that's my comfort level I mean yours may be completely different you might you know as as they say you might enjoy frying in the frying uh, bacon in the nude that may be your thing um, so it really has um, uh, a lot to do with um, you know what what your comfort level is and what you like to to work with from a risk standpoint and so I guess what I would say is that if you are a um, uh, if you are a parent who's expecting a child, then it would seem to me that it would be logical to, um, uh, to take out insurance against the possibility of your children getting ill. Now, it's, it's only logical to do that if you uh, are not comfortable with the risks that result, uh, sorry, with, the, with, the, the, with what can result from failing to do that right? I mean, I'm trying to think of some kind of insurance. I've I've never taken out insurance again uh, against being hit by a meteor. At least, I don't think I have. My wife handles that stuff. But I'm fairly sure, you know, we have an asteroid-free clause. And so, uh, you know, that's a level of risk that I'm comfortable with. And of course, if I don't get hit by an asteroid, it'll it'll pay off pretty well because I'll save the, you know, penny a day (laughs) or whatever that, you know, one latte every three years. Um, But... Uh, you know if so if you want to take the risk and and not take out any insurance for your children being born with you know some sort of birth defect or or you know having some sort of childhood ailment, then you know you don't have to take out that insurance in which case it's hard to sort of i mean certainly I feel sympathy, my God, I mean it's a terrible thing, but you know I don't feel that this is a a sort of metaphysical wrong or un, you know sort of fundamental Unfairness that must be rectified by me, uh, you know, being forced at gunpoint to subsidise the ailments of the child. I mean, I'm, look, I mean, I'd be more than happy to, under certain situations, to subsidise, you know, uh, to help uh, children who were, you know, to help people who had this kind of, of uh, problem, uh, because you know, I, mean, we, I think we can all sympathise with, you know, it's not the child's fault for sure that the parents didn't take out insurance. So I can certainly sympathise with that, but it certainly is something that the parents chose to a risk that the parents chose to take and of course the the reality is it is a risk the reality is it is expensive if you you need to take care of a child who has those kinds of medical problems so you know as i'd sort of mentioned before you know justice is the recognition of reality and the reality is that there's no such thing as fairness and we know that there's no such thing as fairness right otherwise moral people would never worry about getting hit by buses you know i would never have disability insurance for cancer because uh you know the world is fair and i'm a good guy who tries to do his best to spread the ideas of morality in the world and therefore wouldn't you know uh the world will never let me get struck down with some kind of cancer but you know recognition of reality uh, is that there is no such thing as fairness. You know, as I wrote in a poem probably 15 or 20 years ago, two men in a wood, one bad, one good, are both eaten by wolves. You know, they, they taste kind of the same, right? I mean, morality doesn't affect you know, a material reality. It affects your own conscience. It affects your interactions with people. But, you know, being a good person doesn't mean that you're not going to get sick and it doesn't mean that you're not going to be born, have a child born to you who has a congenital defect that's going to be very expensive. So, you know, the the fact of the matter is there are risks in the world. If you choose not... To take those, uh, not to accept uh, or to recognise those risks and uh, and work to ameliorate them, then if they strike you down, it's a terribly sad thing. But it's certainly no demand on everybody else that they have to, you know, subsidise your risks at gunpoint. You know, one of the one of the interesting things that happened. You know, when when you fail to to recognize reality, I mean, you know, bad, terrible, corrupt, horrible, awful things happen, you know, in the long run. And, you know, one of the things that happened in the U.S. healthcare system was that, uh, you know, to some degree, uh, you know, people uh, were not taking out health... They, people weren't taking out healthcare insurance, and then they were getting sick uh, with something, you know, something terrible. And what happened was... Um, you know, insurance companies, of course, would refuse to insure them. It's like you, you're already sick; <laughs> we can't insure you because you know, uh, otherwise, we would just sort of be a charity, uh, you know, in a bad way. And so, I think it's it's sort of fair to say that you know, it's it's not it's hard to blame insurance companies for not uh, wanting to insure people who are already sick because you know, the whole point is that you have to pay for the risk, right? Once the risk is, it's like saying to the blackjack dealer, oh, I got 21, let me put $300 down instead of five bucks. Well, he's going to say, well, no, that's that's sort of not how how the casino operates, because that's not how reality operates, right? Uh, risk is, is something that is, by its nature, uh, ill-defined, right? It's not a risk for me to say that I'm going to be dead in 200 years, uh, you know, uh, but it is a risk to say I'm not going to get cancer in 20, you know, for the, for the next 20 years. So, insurance companies have to, uh, people have to gamble because the reality of risk is that it is unknown. And if you let people wait for risk to become known and then pay, you know, small premiums, then, the, you know, the whole system doesn't work from an economic standpoint. So, you know, what happened in the States was, you know, a lot of sympathetic people sort of got together, you know, sort of stupidly sentimental people got together and they said, well, it's really terrible, you know, that uh, people who are sick, uh, you know, get refused, get rejected for pre-existing conditions, right? So, so there's a big move afoot in Congress and so on, and they got all this stuff going where you can't be rejected for pre-existing conditions and all that anymore. And, you know, it's also blindingly predictable, right? So they got this all passed, and, well, what happened? Well, what do you know? As soon as it became permissible to... Uh, apply for insurance and get insurance while you had a pre-existing condition. Well, guess what? Everyone goes. Well, gee, <laughs> I'm going to save myself, you know, tens and thousands of dollars, and I am simply not going to take out insurance uh, until I get uh, sick, right? I mean, it makes perfect sense, right? I'm not going to pay for insurance if I can, you know, for twenty years. If I can just pay for insurance for one month. You know, and save myself, you know, fifty thousand dollars if I can pay for insurance for one month, and uh, you know, have exactly the same effect, right? I mean, that would be a logical thing to do from sort of a purely financial standpoint, right? I mean, yes, you're profiting from the evil corruption of the co- of the Congress, but it's not like you not doing it's going to change the law, right? So I can certainly understand, you know, that particular approach. So, you know, I mean, this is the ways in which a refusal to recognize reality completely corrupts and destroys a healthcare system, right? So what happens? Well, a lot of people who've recognized all of this simply stop paying insurance. And, of course, it tends to be the least honorable and the least responsible of, you know, all the people. So these people, of course, tend to have the most expensive healthcare costs, right? I mean, a lack of responsibility is fairly well correlated with higher health care costs because you know, you're not responsible, then you're not going to take care of your health. So what happens is then, of course, the people who have the most expensive healthcare care system, sorry, the most expensive healthcare requirements are the people who have simply stop paying for it and then only pay when they need it. So, I mean, the costs, the costs just go up blindingly. I mean, like, unimaginably, right? So, I mean, if you want to sort of wonder why all of your healthcare costs are going through the roof, it's, you know, it's for this kind of reason. And you know it all makes perfect sense from an economic standpoint. You know you've got the people bailing out of the system who uh, have the most expenses, and then you know jamming all of their expenses based on one $400 monthly check, and then saying, "Oh yeah, okay, now I want you know 50 grand worth of chemotherapy." So you know this is the kind this is the kind of stuff that happens politically. Oh, if you're wondering what the background noises are, the sort of car alarms and horns and screams, it's because I'm trying to park uh, at a mall for my wife's present. Uh, and, you know, of course, it's, uh, you know, two days, three shopping days, the, the third night shopping day before Christmas. So, you know, love is in the air and the spirit of Christ moves uh, across the wilderness. So, um, so, yeah, I mean, I just sort of wanted to point out that, you know, I mean, any moral system and any sort of political system, you know, Certainly, any economic system, let's say, because when I say politics, I probably mean something quite different than than most people. Uh, I mean DROs and stuff. But um, you know, any political system that doesn't recognise reality, any economic system which which you know uses force to, to sort of destroy the facts of reality, uh, will you know it you know automatically you know cause incredible dislocation and you know, pain and destruction and, and will act against the very goal that is attempting to achieve, right? So, you know, people say, oh, you know, these poor people who, you know, did not uh, get their uh, health care in order, boy, they're, you know, they're dying, they're sick, they're unhappy, they're sad, let's give them a break and let them get some health insurance, you know, without, you know, with a pre-existing condition. So, you know, you seem to be, you know, some sort of stupid nice guy. And what happens then, of course, is that um, uh, you know the inevitable occurs, and you raise the price of healthcare to the point where um, you know other people who justly would want to pay it can no longer pay it. And of course, in the long run, you end up with a complete collapse of the economics of healthcare. At which point, of course, the government steps in and says, "Ah, you see, we knew the free market wasn't going to work. All right, it's time to shop." Thank you so much for your attention. I hope this has been helpful and all the best. I'm sure I will have a chance to chat with you again before Christmas arrives. But uh, if not, uh, or of course, if you're listening to this after Christmas, unthinkable, I'm sure you download the minutes after I upload them. Have yourself a very, very Merry Christmas. All the best.